starting in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9. Okay. says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. All right, you can have a seat. My, my kids up here were speed reading, and it got me going a little fast there at the beginning, I think. I was like, whoa, got to slow down. Uh, growing up, each year we would do Christmas Day at my grandparents' on the waterman's side. And so that was just where we spent Christmas every year. And I absolutely loved that day. It was something I looked forward to every single year. It was fun. There was laughter and there was wrestling, right? And there was just all sorts of crazy antics that happened. And it was always loud. It was always loud. And this may be hard for you to imagine, knowing me now, but when I was a kid, I personally was not very loud. In fact, when I was a kid, I didn't really talk a whole lot at all. And so I have some, I built up kind of like quiet equity, and now I'm trying to get that out uh, as an adult, I think. But I mostly just watched people. I watched my family, and in the midst of all of this rowdiness, uh, what came to be known later uh, by those who marry into the family as the Waterman Roar, um, there were two people that I found most fascinating, and it was actually two of, in some ways, two of the quietest people at the Waterman family Christmas. The first person was my grandpa, and in some ways, you could say my grandpa was responsible for all of that mess, right? But my grandpa often sat back, whether we were in the living room or whether we were often in the kitchen is where we were. He often sat back, generally quiet, watching and laughing as things kind of played out. And he had this like belly, right? He, he carried all of his extra weight in like one very particular place. If you've if you ever seen someone like that, it's just right here. And this, this belly he had, it wasn't like soft and smushy. It was like, it was like he could flex it. It was amazing. It was like rock solid if he wanted it to be. And, and so he had this belly and he would watch as these crazy antics would happen and he would laugh and his belly, when he really got going, his belly would shake up and down like it was nodding, you know, with like, yes, I, I agree with this. I affirm this, these jokes, you know. In fact, it would oftentimes shake more than his laughter was actually audible. You know, you would know he was laughing first by the shaking of his belly and then later by the sound of his laugh. The other person who really intrigued me my uncle John. My uncle John married into the family. He was uh, uh, 12 years older than my aunt. So if you're keeping track, he was graduating high school when she was going into kindergarten. 
um, though they got married much later. And he had this big bushy mustache and an incredible wit. His sense of humor was very different than the waterman sense of humor. The, the waterman sense of humor was kind of like, I don't know, like a hammer to a nail. And his humor was like a scalpel, you know, it was, it was precise and there were words that needed to be said and it cut when it, when it hit, when it landed, you know, and we were just like, blah, 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 just banging the same joke over and over again. That's how the Watermans do it. And so he was very interesting to me. And years later, as an adult, my uncle, John, would describe some of these Christmas celebrations from his outside perspective. Things that would happen. Now, I don't know where it came from exactly. And perhaps during the year, because my aunt and my uncle lived so many, so many miles away, they lived in Texas, and, and maybe my grandpa, you know, perceived that that was, you know, my uncle John's fault that his daughter was so far away from him or whatever. Um, but but every Christmas they would come up, you know, from, from uh, Texas and they would spend time. And I don't know where the tension between my uncle and my grandpa uh, came from particularly. But my uncle would describe this thing that would happen most every year. You see, they would drive up in their minivan, all their stuff packed into there for the week of Christmas that they would spend in Kansas. And if you have kids and you've done this thing, you know, like you, you start packing all that stuff in there when you have kids and all of a sudden you're like, where did all this stuff come from? I couldn't fit a single more thing in here if I wanted to, right? And you get up there and it'd be Christmas morning and my cousins, Ashley and Sean, uh, would go to unwrap their presents from grandma and grandpa and Christmas morning or whatever. And as they were unwrapping it, they'd be so excited for whatever it was that it was going to be. And oftentimes, that gift, maybe depending on how the year went, would be some cool, awesome gift that my uncle would have to put together. You know those gifts, right? The Christmas gift where you're like, oh, great. That, that gift just gave me as dad like three hours of work, right? I know. And then on top of that, you're thinking, these kids want to play with this right now. It's going to take me three hours to build it. There's no way I'm going to fit this in the van put together, right? I'm going to have to put it together so they can play with it, then take it apart to load it in the van. And then when we drive back to Texas, I'm going to have to put it back together again, right? And so my Uncle John would say, you know, would think to himself, you've got to be kidding me. And he would say that he would look over at my grandpa, who's sitting on his recliner with his cup of coffee, resting on his belly, right? And he would, and my, uh, my grandpa would just have this smile on his face. And he would just glance at my Uncle John like, yeah, that's what you get. And that was all, that was it. He didn't ever say anything. He, he was just like, Mm-hmm. Yeah, you like that, don't you? Yeah. You see, what, what one person means as a gift 
sometimes another person perceives as a burden. I don't know that my Uncle John and my grandpa ever actually talked about that. I don't know if my grandpa ever had actually any ill will in those moments. Maybe my, my uncle was uh, known to exaggerate in order to have a good funny story, right? So I don't know if that was ever actually the case. But one person, what one person means as a gift, another person can sometimes perceive as a burden if they don't understand the thing that's being given. This Advent, as we consider the incarnation of Christ, right? God in the flesh as a human being coming to earth. And as we're considering the Lord's prayer within that, this, this model prayer that Jesus gives his disciples that they should, that should guide how they pray, we want to look this morning at verse 10 in particular in two petitions, two related petitions in there. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And while this phrase and this, this prayer sounds really spiritual, like it sounds really right to pray it, right? Like, Oh, yeah, your will be done, God, your, your kingdom come, you know. The question we need to ask our own hearts is, do we actually really want this? Like, take a minute and think to yourself. Most of the time, on any given day, any given minute, do you actually really want God's kingdom to come and God's will to be done? Do we see this ultimately as a gift or do we see it as a burden? Do we want God's kingdom or is our prayer really my kingdom come? My will be done. Perhaps some of this confusion comes from not really having a great idea about what it is we're even praying for in that moment. You see, the Lord's Prayer is not meant to be prayed merely word for word. I mean, it's fine, as we did a second ago, to read it or to pray it word for word, but it's meant to be given as a model by which our other prayers, our, our everyday prayers, can be shaped. It's meant to help us understand who it is we're praying to and what it is we ought to be praying for. And with that in mind, recognizing that there may be some confusion on this particular point, I want to look at three questions this morning about God's kingdom, particularly that may help us. I want to look first and answer the question, what is God's kingdom? Second, I want to answer the question, how does God's kingdom come? And third, why pray for God's kingdom to come? I want to say as I get started that I am indebted to the work of a scholar named Graham Goldsworthy, in this sermon, I read a book by him a couple of years ago, and then as I was working on this, I realized, man, that, that book was uh, very helpful. He's a scholar in the 1900s who specialized in what we call biblical theology, that is, 
how certain things, concepts, themes reveal themselves progressively throughout Scripture. And so I want to give credit where credit's due before I get going that I'm very much indebted in this sermon to his work. And I would very much recommend to you his book, Gospel and Kingdom. Um, it's a very good book and unpacks a lot more of what I'm going to talk about this morning that I couldn't get into. So the first question we have to ask is this, what is God's kingdom? See, the term itself, God's kingdom, it's not actually in the Old Testament in that way. It's not, not, you're never going to look in the Old Testament and find them talking specifically or saying the words God's kingdom like that. And yet Jesus prays it here. In fact, before he even prays it here, he's already talking about God's kingdom coming or God's kingdom being near or God's kingdom being at hand. And yet nowhere do we see anyone going, uh, uh, Jesus, um, what are you talking about? Everywhere it's assumed that the disciples and that the, the, his Jewish audience understands to some extent what he's talking about or has some conception of what he means when he talks about the kingdom of God. You see, the, the idea of a kingdom is a bit foreign to us as we are often surrounded mostly by democracy now, right? A kingdom is perhaps most easily understood in terms of the relationship between the ruler and his subjects. So a kingdom includes the king's people. Who, is, who are the people in the kingdom? A kingdom includes those people in the king's place. What is the king's land? That, where does he rule? And a kingdom includes those people in that place under the king's rule. How does he rule? What is his rule? So you've got people and you've got place and you have rule. And so even though there's not a direct reference to God's kingdom in the Old Testament, everywhere throughout the Old Testament, we actually see this. We see a pattern of the kingdom at the very beginning. God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place, the Garden of Eden. In God's rule, his word lays out what they should do and what they should not do, right? We've just been going through Genesis. We see that. But then what happens? They rebel. The people who are to be under the kingdom rebel against their king, and they're pushed out of that place. Until, in Genesis 12, God inserts himself again, and he promises a kingdom through a covenant, through a relationship that he will have with Abraham and his descendants. And God promises to make Abraham a people, to give him a land or a place, and that those people will be under his authority or under his rule. And so there's a pattern that's set out for the kingdom. There's a promise that's made about the kingdom with Abraham. And Abraham's descendants, what happens? They multiply in Egypt, and they become God's people, and they're given the law to be their rule, and they're given the promised land to be their place. And we think perhaps when David and with Solomon become, come to power, and they're these kings over this great kingdom of Israel, we think perhaps this thing has reached its fulfillment, but the people continue to rebel, right? 
Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden. The people of God rebelled in the wilderness. The people rebel again, even though God has blessed them with this magnificent earthly kingdom. And so the kingdom blows up and we realize in retrospect that the reign of David and Solomon aren't the kingdom in its fullness, but they're the kingdom as it's foreshadowed. They're a foreshadowing, not the climax of this story. And the prophets that come after see this and they realize that there is a future fulfillment to this kingdom. And so when Jesus prays, Hundreds of years later, your kingdom come, your will be done. That's the point when the disciples are praying with him that you're going to hear the mm-hmm's and the amens. Because it's been thousands of years in the making, hundreds of years in the making. He's praying for the realization of a promise that goes deep into who they are, into the communal identity of the Jewish People, not only deep into that, but deep into his interaction, God's interaction with all of mankind on earth. He's praying for the greatest gift that they could imagine. That's what he's praying for when he says this. And they would have known it as soon as he spoke the words. They would have known it. He's praying against the very disobedience that ruined the kingdom pattern. That ruined the kingdom's earthly foreshadowing. That insatiable desire that you and I have to throw off God's rule and to rule ourselves instead. You know that desire, right? And here's the point, guys. God's kingdom is a gift. It's meant to be a gift. It really, truly is a gift. Whether you realize it or understand it or not, it is. Your feelings about it don't change the fact of what it is. It's an incredible gift to his creation at the beginning. It's an incredible gift promised to his people to pull them out of slavery and give them countless blessings but unfortunately, our sinful hearts often seem, it often seems to us in our sinful hearts that it is a burden instead. While his rule gives us and brings us so many blessings, we think to ourselves, I think I can do this better my way. We think we're better off calling our own shots and we might think to ourselves, well, I want Jesus to be on my advisory team, but he didn't come to be on your advisory team. He came to be on your throne. He's a king. He's not an advisor. And it's not, you don't, there's no halfway. It's all or nothing. Nevertheless, Jesus prays your kingdom come. But how does God's kingdom come? How does that happen? It's important to note throughout the Bible, at each stage, at each place, if you didn't notice that every, at every revelation of the kingdom is brought about by a redemptive act. At the beginning, it's a little different because we didn't ever even exist. And yet God brought us into existence, not because he needed us, but because he chose to. 
In the sense that in itself is a redemptive act. And God's people rebel in the garden and they continue to rebel out of the garden until God brings us Noah and the flood is a redemptive act in creation. Then God's people are enslaved in Egypt under Pharaoh and God brings Moses and the Exodus is a redemptive act to bring them into the promised land. Then God's people reject God under this tangible earthly kingdom and it results in their exile to other nations. But God brings the prophets to reestablish the promise he gave, giving them hope for another redemptive act. And then 400 years later, John the Baptist hits the scene and he's the last of the Old Testament prophets, right? Because he's the, the last one that comes right before Jesus. And in Matthew 3, 2, John the Baptist starts saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He declares that he is making the way for the one through whom the kingdom would finally come. All these years, all these centuries, and it's here. And Jesus comes onto the scene, and Mark records Jesus declaring almost immediately, the time is fulfilled. You've been waiting and waiting and waiting for Christmas. Christmas is here. The gift is here. The kingdom is at hand. Jesus is about to fulfill all of the Old Testament's hope about the kingdom. It is the gospel, friends, how God loves and saves sinners, rebel sinners, through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That's the last and true redemptive act. Jesus is the one to whom the kingdom always pointed. You see, Christ fulfills everything about the kingdom that we find in the Old Testament and in Scripture. Jesus is the last Adam, the seed of Abraham, the son of David. At every point, he is the fulfillment of the kingdom. He fulfills all that is foreshadowed about the people of the kingdom. It's not just a place, but he, Jesus Christ, is the place. In Hebrews 11 and 12, tell us that Abraham looked, it says, to a better country, even as he walked, even, even as he thought uh, 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 that this, this promised land was promised to him and he knew that, he, that the people would live in this land, he looked, it says, to a better country that is a heavenly country, a heavenly Jerusalem. And in that city, the Bible describes a true temple, a picture of the presence of God. And it says Jesus is that temple. Jesus is that place. And Jesus says the temple would be tore down and in three days it would be rebuilt. And he's speaking of himself. He is the place. The place where the presence of God comes to earth. In his presence, that kingdom exists. And it's not just any rule. He is the rule. You see, God always relates to his people through these covenants, right? And he had this law and none of us could obey it. But when Jesus comes to earth, he lives completely obedient to that law, to the old covenant in a way every human should have done, but none of us have. And as Matthew 5, 17 tells us, Jesus didn't come to destroy the law. He came to fulfill it. And so Hebrews 12 says, just as he's the true temple, he also mediates a new covenant, a new rule. The rule of grace by his cross. 
And so from the gospel, we get a new rule. While the law is the standard of God's righteousness, Romans 12, 13, we are no longer under the law, but we're under grace, Romans 6, 14. But faith, faith doesn't destroy the law. It actually upholds it, Romans 3, 31. And so by the gospel, we're made righteous by, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He is the rule. The bottom line is this. Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God. He must because he's the fulfillment of all of it. Guys, wrap your brain around this. Everything that you read in the Old Testament, every single bit of it is fulfilled in Jesus. He said it in Luke 24. He said that. I'm fulfillment of all of these things. Everything from the Old Testament, it funnels down into this one moment when Jesus comes to earth, fully God, fully man, and he lives that obedient life that we never lived, and he dies that obedient death on the cross that we couldn't do, and it defeats death by death. And then raises from the dead. Every glorious result of the gospel is the gift of God's kingdom unwrapped and manifest right here and now. And as our catechism question said, Jesus sits at the right hand of the throne of God and God is putting everything under his feet, everything. And every knee will bow to him. No matter what you decide here on earth, every knee will bow to him who is the kingdom. I think, I think we often think about Jesus bringing God's kingdom like the old Kmart layaway program. Now, I may be a little bit like just old enough to remember this, so you young folks may not realize that people used to do this. I, I'm sure they did it at other stores, but I remember it most vividly at Kmart because that's where we shopped. Some of you guys probably are like, Kmart, what's Kmart? It's, Kmart is just an abandoned building. Isn't that what they just put, like the name they put on abandoned buildings? No, it was a store and people shopped there. I can remember going to Kmart, doing this layaway thing, right? So, so basically this is what it was, you know, in a time before everyone put Christmas on their credit card and then paid, paid it off by, you know, Independence Day the next year, you did the layaway program. And so you'd go to the Kmart and, you know, your kids would be like, oh, daddy, I want this, or oh, mommy, I want this. And you'd be worried that, that it might be sold out before Christmas or whatever. And so you would get it and you would take it to the layaway desk or what have you. And you'd pay how much ever that you needed to pay right then. And they would sit it aside for you. You know, you get a little ticket or whatnot. And then later on, when you got your next paycheck or whenever you had the cash to do so before Christmas, you'd come back to the Kmart and you'd make that, that new payment or another payment, and you'd finally you'd pay that thing off, and then they would give it to you, and then you could bring it home, and then you could wrap it and put it under the Christmas tree. It's this weird thing we used to do called paying for things first before you get them. It's another conversation for another day. 
But it, here's the deal. If you, if you paid that initial payment, as I understand it, as I remember it, if you paid that initial payment and it set it aside and you never got the money and you never came back before Christmas and you never paid that sucker off, that's Kmart's, not yours. And what I want you to understand is the first time Jesus showed up in the Kmart that we call Earth, he didn't put the kingdom on layaway. We aren't waiting for him, for his ship to come in and him to come back and pay for the rest of it and finally bring the kingdom about. No. When he hung on the cross and died and when he rose from the dead, he paid it all. It's done. If you are by faith in Christ, if you are in Christ, you are in the kingdom. It's done. You have the riches by faith of all that Christ is bringing. Do you understand? You have the gift. You are a new people, what the Bible calls a new Israel, those who are in Christ. You are in his new place. You are the new temple. He sent his spirit to live in you, the presence of God in you right now, changing you, transforming you, leading you into truth. You are where he is. You are under a new rule, a new covenant, Christ's gracious rule in us, which frees us from the bondage of sin. Friends, in Christ, you can have the kingdom right now. You don't have to wait. Christmas has come. All the gifts that come with this restoring of relationships, this restoring of relationships to God, are ours fully in Christ through faith right now. But that leads us to our last question. Why pray for God's kingdom to come? You see, if Jesus has already brought God's kingdom, why do we need to pray for it to come? If Jesus went to Walmart and he bought it and he brought it home, then what are we praying for? Let me give you another illustration that hopefully will help you understand. The Bible says that we truly have these gifts of the kingdom, but we have them right now by faith. And one day when Jesus returns, we will have them by sight. That right now we see dimly as in a mirror, but one day we will see face to face. This doesn't make them any less real, but it does mean that we live currently in attention. Now think about, think about when you're a kid and you see those gifts under the tree, right? All those gifts that, they, that they, they have your name on them, right? They have names on all of the gifts. Now sometimes my parents would keep us in the dark as to what those gifts were. But oftentimes we had made it really clear what we wanted and they made it really clear that they were just wanting to get us what we wanted, right? They didn't want to like go buy something that we ended up wanting. And so a lot of times it was wrapped there, but I knew exactly what that was in that box, right? It was right there. It was bought. It wasn't on layaways. It was ours. My name was on it, but you were waiting until you could fully experience it. Now, this analogy breaks down at one point because we actually get to experience these gifts right now in some ways, by faith, at least in part. 
But perhaps like my cousins who had the gift unwrapped, you might, and they might even get it out of the box and they might even play with it to some extent. It wasn't until they got home one day in a week or whatever that my uncle would finally put it totally together and they could fully experience it. When we pray your kingdom come, we're praying for that day to come when we get to go home and experience by sight all that Jesus bought for us. But there's another element we're praying for when we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's another sense that we're praying your kingdom come as well. You see, when those presents start showing up under the tree, as a kid, you go to look for which ones are yours, right? Which ones have my name on it? I don't know if this ever happened to you, but sometimes not all the gifts got under the tree all at once. Sometimes my sister's gifts would be purchased and bought and put under the tree and her name would be on it. But there weren't as many gifts with Cody's name on them or maybe none. You see, some people's gifts aren't there. For some, their name isn't on anything. When that day comes, when the big day comes, they may in fact have a gift, but right now it's not evident. What I'm saying is this, there are those among us who at present, who in this moment today do not have the gift of salvation. On that day, they may in fact have that gift, but right now in this moment, it is not evident, and they are not experiencing by faith God's kingdom in the way that we, church, are experiencing it. And so when we pray, your kingdom come, we're praying for the gospel to go forth to other people, that the Father would adopt more children, and that those children would have gifts under his tree as well. That the kingdom would multiply and fill the earth. We live in a world that is still filled with rebellion to the king. And sometimes that rebellion even creeps into our own hearts, right? And this is why we pray your kingdom come for the salvation of more and more people and for the anticipation of his glory. So when I think, when I think of that story, that my Uncle John would, would tell. It's bittersweet. It's a bittersweet story because while it makes me smile to think about it, I also realize that if by some chance we were able to have another Waterman family Christmas, the reality is that neither my Uncle John nor my grandpa would be there because both of them have died. It'll never be the same. For many of you, Christmas, the Christmas season and Christmas memories are frankly bittersweet as well. They remind you of things that are not 
that you wish were, or that you wish could be. Remind you of the loved one who is now gone, the child who is far from God, perhaps far from you, the family that's been broken apart, the friends with whom you are in conflict. It reminds you of all those things. And so while you look at back and you, and you think happy thoughts, at the same time it's mixed with these pains. These pains. And so in each of these situations we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We speak the gospel, right? For, for it's only by faith in the gospel that the kingdom comes about. And this kingdom isn't just, friends, about the forgiveness of sins, but it's about the restoring of relationships. And we live by God's will, right? Just as Christ came and prayed, not my will, but yours be done. And he went to the cross. And he went to the cross because it was the Father's will. And because he submitted to the Father's will, we are saved and we are empowered to pray the exact same thing. And we get the privilege of giving people, by the conduct of our lives, a picture of the kingdom of God. But friends, at the end of the day, there is still this bittersweet element while we're here on earth. But this is the promise. Listen, this is the promise. This is the ultimate hope. It's not, it's not in what we do. It's when what Christ has promised by what he has done, that one day it will tangibly be on earth as it is in heaven, all the way forevermore, no exceptions. And this is the promise of Revelation chapter 22, that the temple of the presence of God will be among his church, that there will be a new heavens and a new earth where, where we will dwell with him, that there will be no more tears or no more sorrow because there's no more sin and there's no rebellion against the good king. Our hope, our hope is not wishful thinking, but a confident one that gives us a foundation upon which to move forward. What we see as a shadow today, one day will be fully seen. And so we look forward to that. A gift totally unwrapped, put together for God's children to enjoy. And all because Jesus came to bring God's kingdom.